на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Russian Football News Podcast, bringing you the latest insight into Russian football. My two guests, as per usual, are joining me. I've got Toka Thiele, the editor of Russian Football News. How are you? Hey, Thomas. How are you? I'm alright, thank you. Um, Always a pleasure. And we've also got uh, Andrew Flint. Hello, hello. Good hello. to be back in the country. Yeah, I was going to say, as per day. usual, you are not joining us from two men. No, no, I'm not this time. I'm, I'm sweltering in the tropical heat of Manchester at the moment. So, um, uh, well, I'm not sure how tropical it is, but for me it is at least. Um, well, but yeah, good to be back for a, for a few days. Well, perfect. I'd just like to congratulate you, Andrew, of course, for the uh, Football Supporters Federation recent Blogger of the Year Award. So many congratulations <laughs> from... Thank you. From all of us yes, at thank Russian you, Football thank News, that's really, really fantastic. And Toka, I'm not going to... Uh, of course, we both went to CSK versus Spurs the other night and we had a had a glorious half-an-hour meeting. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was definitely the highlight of the evening. Yeah, I think the, the less said about the game, the better. But we're actually going to kick off with that game because, of course, it was the last match that Leonid Slutsky took in charge of CSK Moscow. Another pretty poor performance, really, that we've got used to in the Champions League. So, Andrew, how would you... Assess. I mean, it's a bit hard to judge on recent history, but overall, how would you judge Slutsky's time in charge of CSK? Well, I mean, overall, you'd have to say it's been a, a huge success given the the trophies that he's won um, and his overall record. He should be remembered well because uh, to have any level of consistency in Russian football itself is an achievement, but but to also um, you know win a few titles and and keep a team together, he's done pretty well. Um, what I would say is, I mean, I don't want to take away from his achievements, but he has been well served at his disposal. Um, and I mean, without, and okay, I'm, I'm just going to give in. I'm always negative on these things. You know me, but, um, you know, one of his downsides has been that he's relied too heavily, I think, on his, you know, his core, the core of his team. Um, and I know, I guess it's one of the hardest challenges as a manager, isn't it? If you've got, you know, if you've got some world-class, or at least international-class players at your disposal, um, you know, you don't want to change him. You don't want to rock the boat. Um, but I think, in the end, his undoing was not quite being bold enough to, you know, reinvent his sides. The truly great managers um, have the mark of a truly great manager is being able to reinvent and rebuild a side, um, if not from scratch, then at least the parts that need renewing. Um, you know, Ferguson was famous for building four title-winning sides. Matt Busby built three or four, you know, era-defining sides. Uh, Slutsky had had one, and I think it. I think it, in the end, it, it ran out. It was a natural. It was a natural chain of events for him to leave around this time. I don't think any of us were hugely surprised, but he should be remembered for um, for a lot of success. So he, he deserves credit for that, at least. But Toka, Andrew mentions there that he failed to rebuild the squad, but Gina, the chairman, hasn't really allowed him to do that, has he? No, I think Sluska has somehow been made the, the scapegoat for all the big problems because, as we all know, Sluska has some, some financial problems at the moment. We have spoken about that before. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why they didn't really replace Ahmed Musa and they didn't really replace Seydou Dombia and all these great players who have left the club in recent years. So Sluski has just been left with a smaller and smaller squad and he has almost been forced to really focus so much in these 
12, 13, 14 key players in the squad. Um, so he hasn't been um, given an easy hand, at least. But but of course, as Andrew said, it's, it's some of it is also his own fault. I mean, he's the one who didn't who didn't bring through any new young players or anything from the academy, uh, and that's that's of course one of the key key areas for Cisco now, where they have to. They work with a smaller budget than than usual, and just just very they, quickly. Sorry, sorry yeah, to interrupt it's, you, it's token. New, new sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I was going to say, you say about bringing players in from the academy, but if the players aren't good enough, he can't bring them in, can he? No, that's absolutely true. Um, you have to find the the right guys, but the the youth team has performed reasonably well in the champions in the youth champions league, and. You also have to give them a chance. I mean, for example, they had a guy like Victor Vassin sitting on the bench for ages. He's, what's his, 25, 26 now, playing on Ufa Unknown. And it, you could easily have thrown a guy like him into the rotation in the central defense just to try and and get someone younger than the Beresutskis and Ignashevich because you know that they have an expiration date that is getting very, very close. But it just, Stutsky kept postponing the problems and at some point, it was it, it was bound to go wrong, which is what we have been uh, watching this season so far. Yeah, Andrew, I was talking to somebody at Wembley the other night, a CSKA fan, and I asked her what she thought of Suzuki's Suzuki's exit, and she said, "As a CSKA fan, I'm I'm sad, but I, I think actually in the long run, it's probably quite a good thing." Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would. Um, it's it's not something that's come out of the blue, like a, like I mentioned, and I think. I think it's just, it's just the right time for him to go. Um, it, you know, he will be remembered fondly, of course, um, by fans in the long run. Yeah, his legacy shouldn't be tarnished that much at all, really. Um, I, I think a new manager is is what CSK need. Um, I think to win the title last season was was his greatest achievement, really. Um, like Toka mentioned, not being backed by the board to replace Ahmed Musa. You would have thought that would have um, that would have been the the final nail in the coffin, but you know managing to survive that is is an achievement. So oh, I don't know. I think um, um, I think it's I think it's the right time to go. The only thing is I'm not entirely sure. It leaves them with a great deal of options for this season. Um, you know, and I'm sure we'll. I mean, personally, we've seen stories linking Victor Goncharenko returning to the club to take over as full time manager, um, and. And I actually think it probably would be one of the better options. But um, in terms of the Slutsky himself, though, yeah, I don't think it should be sad. It should be, you know, it's time to move on. We all know that. Let's accept it and let's get on with it. Yeah, what I found actually quite interesting the other night, Toker, I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know how long you stayed for after the game. But did you see in the dugout at the end when there was a bit of a uh, scuffle in the dugout, the CSK dugout? Did you see that? I was sitting on the opposite end of, uh, of Wembley, so I didn't see it. But but I've seen the video afterwards. But what I noticed... Do you know what it is? Sorry, do you know what it is about at all? Because yeah. I, I only saw it from up high. I just saw a scuffle. I didn't see how it emerged or anything. Yeah, from, from, what I, from what I read was that there was a Cisco fan standing behind the behind the bench who, who was angry at Slutsky for another defeat. And then he decided to, to reply him. And yeah, that's when it, it escalated. Yeah, the other thing I noticed as well that he's, I, I assume he was probably quite distracted by that. He didn't go over to the small contingent of CSKA fans at the end of the game. That surprised me quite a lot. Yeah, exactly. That was actually what I was about to say. That was, 
that was really surprising because you saw all the players going down to say goodbye and thank you for the support and everything. And then we had Slusky at his last game of, I mean, he had been at the club for, for seven years and he just went straight to the, the locker room. It was almost like, uh, Sort of a demonstration of his his last his last action at the club was to to piss up the fans somewhat. That was that was surprising. I have to say that. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, we're talking about. You said Victor Gontrenko there. Would there be anybody else in the frame for you? Um, I would mean, like to say at this stage, I, I can't really I can't really think of anybody who's likely or or would do. To be honest, I mean, we yeah we saw in the summer um, when. <laughs> well, temporarily at least, Berdea left Rostov and we all thought he was going to sign for Spartak, possibly. I mean, technically speaking, he, in a managerial sense, is available, but since he signed that um, agreement to be vice president and advisor, whatever the hell his role really is, um, I doubt he's likely to leave Rostov now. The club um, with three managers. The club with three managers, indeed. They wouldn't want to lose one of the Holy Trinity, would they? Um, <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see Berdeyev. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of managerial ability, he's obviously right at the top of the, the list of people who loosely could be considered. Um, I doubt Berdeyev Carpin will give up his, you know, hairstylist and makeup at Match TV. So, um, you know, I, would I think, you give it uh, up? Probably not, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, taking over it to go right now. Yeah, okay, okay. Let's let's think of it that way then. Who would want to take over Tiska? I mean, okay. Any Ru- any Russian coach with a big ambition, a big club. Well, I mean, I I, I don't mean to pose the question as a you know in, implying that it, it's a it's a bad job. Generally, it's an open question. I mean it, but I mean, um, yeah, okay. You look at look at what you've got. You've got a fantastic new stadium. Um, you've still got some top quality players. Of course, the squad needs filling out, but. You know, like Toka mentioned, the youth team are doing so well in the UEFA Youth League that, you know, there's got to be some potential there. And Fyodor Chalov in recent weeks, I, I genuinely believe this guy could make it into the first team squad. Um, you know, the fans are, I mean, in my experience in Russia, they're the best fans I've seen, pound for pound at least. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about attendance, but the actual atmosphere they create. Um, you know, um, so it's a very attractive option, isn't it? Um, on the other hand, like we've also mentioned, Gina's reluctance to back in the transfer market might put one or two people off if they have ambitions of, you know, improving Cisco's European record, for example. Um, so I certainly think it, any Russian coach, like you say, with an ounce of ambition offered the chance would take it, I'm sure. Um, it's just a case of who's available now. Will they, will they promote somebody from within temporarily till the end of the season? It's an interesting one to see what will happen. I mean, Toko, I mean, we are discussing these other options, but let's be honest, the, the real appointment will be Gontrenko. We're pretty sure of that. But I know you're not quite sure about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced about Gontrenko's level. As Andrew said, he has a lot of things going for him, man. We know he has a past at Cisca, and we know he's a, an interesting young uh, young coach and the youngest coach to coach in the Champions League. It has all these things that are just certainly very impressive. But if we're honest, and if I'm honest with myself and look at his work, I have I haven't really been impressed with him since he moved to Russia. He's he's had about three clubs now, and he's left all of them relatively early. I mean, way earlier than for us to actually see him. Uh, 
develop anything and for us to see him reap the fruits of his work, it's 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 just way too early to judge him by what he did at Kuban and Ural and Ufa now it's I, I think it's strange and then yeah, of course he did well at, at Basel Borisov, but that's almost eight years ago now and that is by far the strongest club in the Belarus anyway, so maybe it's not it, it's just a completely different challenge than Siska. It's a completely different size and I think I have to say I think it's a very risky choice. I think it's um it it's the uh, brave choice and I hope you succeed in everything. But I'm not entirely convinced it is it is a bit, bit too risky for me. I, I would have gone with a more proven a more proven guy who who you know what can do and who has a lot of European experience and all these things. But the only thing with that Toka is well, a couple of things I wanted to say is about Goncharenko. You talk about the long-term effects, and I do agree with you on that, but you have to say that Russian football is very sort of, I don't know, there's a big sort of, it's like a washing machine. It just keeps rumbling round, rumbling round. There's just no straight-line consistency to it. So it's hard to get any sort of long-term plan going at any club, really, I'd say. And also, can Siska afford a, a Russian, well, even, even a foreign coach with European experience? Yeah, that's 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 the problem. Of course, it's um, if if they, they have tried all these big names from abroad earlier, like Van der Ramos and Siko and all these guys, and none of them were really that successful. Um, so of course, I think bringing in someone with experience from Russian or at least East European football is definitely a, a is definitely the way to go. I'm, I don't doubt that at all. But maybe someone like I know there are not a lot of options around, and I can mention someone certain, but for example, look at what Sinner did. They brought in Luchesko, a guy who knows maybe not Russian football, but at least East European football, and who's also a great, great coach with a lot of experience. I mean, I think maybe maybe Siska should have tried to to look around more for longer after some different choices outside of Russia as well. I mean, there are certainly interesting options around, but yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by, about Kancherenko. Uh, well, I hope I will be proven wrong. Yeah, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Gontrenko? Well, actually, to be honest, um, I, I slightly differ from Pope's assessment of him in Russia, in a sense, because he, on, on paper, his record doesn't look great. He's, you know, he's not held down a position for long. But at both Kuban and at Ural, his departure wasn't really linked to his performance on the pitch, but to um, either his or at Ural. Um, we saw last season, um, he left in the wake of the, the betting scandal. This is exactly my point, Andrew, where it's just, there's just sort of no, it's just chaos in Russian football, so you don't have that time. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the washing machine of Russian football is quite a good way to put it. It's, it's just, um, there are so many factors completely out of people's control that it's, it's a, it's not really a fair place to judge somebody's performance from the pitch, really. Um, but, you know, I, I think what it shows is, Atadal, he left on, as far as I understand, he left on principle. He was, he, he wasn't happy with the, the way the club was run and the way they were approaching that particular match against Tarek, which, you know, we saw those crazy betting patterns and it did look highly suspicious. Um, and at Kuban, um, of course, the, uh, Aliag Makrichin, the Armenian owner or investor, um, there were, you know, the Kuban players went without pay, um, and the backing above just plummeted and, and he, again, as far as I can see, out of principle thought, well, if I'm not going to be back to like the promises I've made when I signed, then I'm going to leave. 
So what I would say it shows is that he's very headstrong. He will make his own decisions. And if he's, if promises are not kept, he won't just stick around out of obedience. So how much that will fit in with an owner like Evgeny Gina, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but, you know, they, like, like we say, we're, we're all very much expecting him to be appointed. And, you know, he, he is a young coach. He's got experience with players from last season. Um, I, I actually think in the circumstances, not that I would have necessarily um, wanted Slutsky to go right now, but now we accept he's going in the winter, not summer. I'd say Gondrenko probably is about, for the time being at least, about the, the best option. Um, so I, I'm, I'm more positive about him. I think, I think the chances are he will do reasonably well, um, although we can't expect an explosive start uh, unless he really does perform miracles just because of the, the squad and the backing that he's got. So I, I, I think it's about the best option they could get at this time. The only question really now is what's next for Slutsky? Because I'm thinking he's had quite a, a rough last few months, really, Cisco, and then the Russian national team disaster at the Euros, of course. Are we thinking he'll take a break? We've seen him link with the Vitesse job after his, uh, because of his connections with uh, Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich and his connections with Vitesse. So that's an obvious link. We've also seen links with the Championship, the English Championship, and apparently he is learning English. I'm not sure how the progress is going, but Toka, what do you see next for Slutsky? Well, first of all, I hope Slutsky will, that he will take some time off simply. He has been, and he has looked exhausted recently with uh, having, first of all, having worked at Cisco since 2009, October 2009. That's seven years at the same job, of course. That, that's uh, exhausting. But then he also had the Euro this summer. He double jobbed with the uh, Russian national team. So I definitely think he should take some time off, get some new inspiration. I just read that uh, former Spartak and Arsenal Tuna head coach Dmitry Adenichev, he was at an internship in the, in Roma, I believe it was, uh, or some some Italian club at least. And I think t- t- uh, traveling around, getting some new experience and uh, getting learning new stuff, I think that's so important, especially for for someone like Slutsky who has been working constantly for so many years now. I, I think take half a, half a year off, a year off, and then he can try to look for a new club. And when he does that, I definitely think it would be interesting to see him at a, at a European club because he has won three ch- uh, Russian championships and Champions League qualifying with Cisco now. So he has achieved everything he can achieve in Russia. So I definitely think it's time for him to look abroad. And and he is a, he's a talented guy, I think. He might be slightly overrated uh, in Russia, but overall, he's he's definitely a, a good coach, and and there should be plenty of interested clubs whenever he's ready to return. Yeah, Andrew. I mean, we mentioned they're going to Europe and perhaps taking a break. My only thing is, if he took a break, would he suddenly get forgotten about by European clubs? And in, in well, fact, why would you? To be honest, why would European clubs want him given his recent record? Well, I don't know. I mean, I actually agree with Toka. I think it's in his best interests from a personal point of view to take a break. Absolutely. He, like Toka says, he, he, he looks exhausted. He's even had that unsavory thing with the, that's, that tiny portion of Cisco fans with that anti-Semitic, um, abuse, which it can't go down particularly well. Um, and just like you say, the atmosphere of Russian football is just chaotic. So perhaps, Almost anywhere. As a break, I think as a break, a learning, you know, sabbatical almost. Go and go and spend time with other clubs, just like Toka says, would be a good idea. But you know, would he be forgotten about? Would his, you know, would European clubs want him? 
I think certain clubs would um, still, you know, the because, you know, what we do is, you know, not copied by very many people, you know, telling people about Russian football, discussing it. Um, I think a lot of people would look at his record overall and that would impress them. Uh, and, you know, even even Russia's disastrous finals appearance uh, in the in the Euros, I think can be counterbalanced by his well, okay, his very good short-term rescue mission to, to actually get Russia qualified in the first place. I know we've discussed it in previous pods where his opponents in qualifying weren't really the most challenging, um, but even still, he did the job, and I think people will see that. Um, and I'll see the fact that he adapted quickly to international football. Okay, failed at the final hurdle in the finals, yes, admittedly. Um but yeah, I, I think he'll be in demand, enough in demand to get a job reasonably when he wants to in the summer. Because I don't think many clubs are going to be hiring in the winter anyway. So um I think I think he should be okay to take a six month break. Um and it will be in his best his best interest. More clubs will be available, he'll be able to hopefully um you know, apply for a club that suits him better. So that's what I hope he does. Um, you know, the the rumours with you know lower league clubs in in England or in in Holland with Vitesse Arnhem, like you mentioned, um, I, I don't. It doesn't quite sit right just now. I don't think so. In the summer, that's when I think he should look for a new job. Yeah, to, going back to that uh, Vitesse link, I'm thinking if he does go to Europe, Holland's quite a good place to start because it's it is a good league, but there's not so much focus on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, regarding what Andrew said, I think it's also important to remember that the clubs linked with Slutsky. They're not the, the very big clubs. I mean, we have Vitesse, a mid, a mid-table club in, in Holland. And let's be honest, if, if they didn't have a Russian, uh, or Georgian owner, they wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be interested in, in Slutsky. So it's not like he's going to move to, to a top club somewhere, but it, it seems like some mid, a mid-table club in a, in a decent league, that's, that's the level for him at the moment, especially as long as he doesn't speak any better English. That, that's a huge, that's a huge problem for him if he wants to go international because you, he really needs to be able to communicate with his players. Um, so I, I hope that's also one of the things that he'll focus a lot on the next six months. We have heard that he's already trying to learn English. And that's, of course, that's, that's such an important thing for him now because if he does learn English, then he suddenly becomes a much more attractive uh, coach for everybody because then, yeah, it really opens some doors for him. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I watch a lot of championship football being a Birmingham City fan. And I'd be really interested to see him in the championship, just not at Birmingham City, please. Just don't come. But, um, but I think a lot of championship managers, they have a lot of nous, in particular of English football. And I'm not sure Slutsky has that, to be honest. Would you say that, Andrew? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that would make a great deal of sense. Um, because I mean, the championship is, well, I mean, obviously, like you say, Tom, you watch it, uh, week in, week out, but, you know, people known for well championships are fairly uh, a fairly tough lead to establish yourself in unless you really do take over at a club like, for example, with the resources of Newcastle, and you can fully expect to be challenging straight away. We've seen clubs go up and down that division like mad, and I don't think that's the right environment for him. Um, and yeah, like you say, you've, you've got to have more specialist knowledge of that league than if you came in at a, an English Premier League club, for example, where you will have seen at least to some degree the type of players that you're going to be managing and managing against. So I don't think that would make sense at all. Um, 
I, I don't think England at all would suit him, in my opinion. Um, I, I think if he goes abroad, somewhere like you mentioned, for the same reason to say, Holland would make sense. Um, so, no, that would be a mistake to, to move to the Championship, definitely, for me. Okay, so we're going to move on to another topic now that's been, well, really come out in the last 24 hours or so, and that is the latest doping scandal to affect Russian sport, really. Uh, we've seen the latest report from uh, Mr. McLaren, who, of course, has said that we've seen big cases of state-sponsored doping, and the difference now is, whereas before, there wasn't really concrete evidence behind it, we now feel that there is some concrete evidence behind it. We've seen uh, memos between various parties and, you know, manipulation of samples and things like that. Things like adding salt to make them a different colour. Very odd, but uh, if it works. But anyway, um, connecting this with football, Andrew, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, yeah, I mean, first, the first thing I'd say is, uh, I don't, I don't think anybody can dispute, certainly not at this stage anyway, um, whether you're Russian or English, that there is a huge problem in Russian sport as a whole. Um, but I've been reading the reports of, um, you know, the, all of the news coverage of the McLaren reports, and it obviously was focused on the, the last two Olympics and the, and the most recent Winter Olympics in Sochi. Um, and, you know, all of the focus is on basically athletics. And I, you know, the, the mentions of football in there are very, very vague at best. Now, I'm not saying for a second that I believe there is no involvement in football. I would not be surprised if there is some level, um, of, of doping at some degree. But, you know, you've got to remember, of course, Russia wasn't in the uh, football Olympics the last two editions. So, from the purely Olympic investigation side of things, obviously there's no there's no link there. Um, but it's it just seems I don't know. I'm torn between the two here. It seems that it's convenient reporting to you know it seems to be something that's been shouted for a long time that um, uh, that the World Cup should be taken off Russia, and yet without serious concrete proof about football specifically. I mean, I I saw one email. Um, transcripts where Grigory Rodchenkov, the, the whistleblower, had asked the Russian sports ministry, what should we do about these samples? And it didn't say which match it was or when it was or what happened after it or anything like that. And whether it, more importantly, is a deeper rooted issue. So my first instinct of reading today's reporting is that I, I want to see much more clear evidence specifically on football it's too broad an investigation to suddenly say well we'll take the world cup off off russia i, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction at this stage but we'll see what comes out in the next few days and weeks yeah i mean toko what, what would you make of all this scandal well i think what andrew said about there being no concrete links to football at this stage that's that's definitely true but we also have to remember that the most powerful man in russian football Vitaly mutko the former sports minister current deputy prime minister and President of the Russian Football Union is is heavily involved, and he's even trying to become a member of the the powerful FIFA Council at the moment. So there's that huge, enormous link between all these state-sponsored doping and then Russian football, and that's that's of course the, the major issue right now. Yeah, I mean, we see the links with Mutko and everything, and actually, I'm I'm going to read something that's a, a bit long, but it's, I feel it's quite important. It's from Damien Collins, MP, an English MP, who I think actually in the past has been very vocal on um, the World Cup in Russia. So um, it says, uh, FIFA now have to look very seriously at the way in which the World Cup is going to be staged. 
how can Russia give confidence to FIFA and to the world that there will be proper anti-doping measures in place during the World Cup? It's not just widespread abuse by Russian coaches and athletes. It is something that has been planned and executed with the authority and support of the Russian government. Um, it does call into question how someone like Vitaly Mukho, who of course we've mentioned, who was sports minister and in the WADA report they said it would have been impossible for him not to know what was going on, can sit on the FIFA Council. The sports bodies have to not only take action against Russian athletes competing until we can be confident the anti-doping regime in Russia is robust and being honestly pursued, but also look at the role of Russian sports administrators and politicians who have senior positions in the governing bodies of world sports. How can they hold these positions if they are implicated in this massive state-sponsored doping scandal? Now, Mutko has responded by saying that they will be taking legal action in response to these sorts of things. But, Andrew, I, I don't like being a, a Russian apologist, and that's not what we're about. We like to give a, an honest look at football, whatever side. But given that Damien Collins has complained before, and I'm thinking part of, of course, Russia's rival were England 2018, is, is there a bit of bitterness here? I mean, like I said, I don't want to be a Russian apologist, but I'm just posing the question. Um, that's that's the, the key the key part of the debates in terms of, you know, what we're seeing in the media right now, in my opinion. Um, you know, you see, I, I read Martin Samuel this morning um, in the papers, and, you know, he's violently, violently against anything to do with Russia, full stop. Um, and I don't think you can just simply lump it all in with, well, something bad's happened in Russia. And don't get me wrong, it is horrific what we've seen. And I, I think the punishment should be severe for those responsible. And in my term, in my opinion, that's the key part. I think Mutko's position on a, on a, on a global stage is exceptionally fragile. How, how he will be able to hold on to his position in the world's media eyes will be very debatable. But You've got to remember, he knows how to operate. He knows how to build a career closely linked, obviously, to the Kremlin, you know, his deputy prime minister role, linked in with all his senior sports administration roles. He didn't get there just by being good at administrating. Um, so I have to say, it'd be fascinating to see how he defends his position. And he will. Don't get, you know, make no mistake. He will fight his position. He will do everything he can to, um, appeal, do whatever he needs to, prolong his stay um but i have to be honest i don't see how he can given the depth of the investigation how it implies him directly uh, i don't see how he can hold on to that position now i think is i think at this point it's it's a case of uh i don't know what you call it disaster management on russia's part right now and the one simple way they could start to as mr collins mentioned in that that thing you read out. One way Russia could start to regain the trust of the world community would be, very simply, to fire a public figure, to get rid of Mutko. Now, just saying that is not as it's not as easy as you as you think, simply because of his ties and his importance to so many Russian clubs, to the Kremlin, to the the Russian Football Union. But if they did, I think that would be the best in the best interests of the country as a whole, simply because people would say, okay, he is the key figure at the top of all of this controversy. Now, whether it's specifically football or not doesn't matter. He's the man who must, as Mr. McLaren says, 
uh, must have known about this, must have rubber stamped it. So it's not the athletes who have done this. Some athletes will have willingly participated. Some will unwillingly have been coerced into it. Um, so in my opinion, it's crucial that we punish the right people. Uh, and I have to be honest, I don't see how Mutko can wriggle out of this one. Wriggling out of things is a speciality of his, but I don't see how he can get out of this one. Yeah, Toka, we mentioned Mutko there, and of course he's not the sports minister anymore, but like Andrew says, he's so tied up in everything, even if he doesn't hold any roles officially, he's very tied up in it. Would you agree that the only way for Russia really to move football, and looking at the World Cup as well, is if, if Mutko goes? But even then, if he goes, he's still tied up. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course, and the only reason he's not sports minister anymore is because he was promoted. I mean, he's deputy prime minister now, and his former assistant is, is sports minister. So instead of having negative consequences for him, he's actually higher up the food chain now. So it's it's all madness to me. But uh, other than that, I definitely agree with uh, what Andrew said, and it's it is tragic to have a to have a man like him running around like uh, doing these things because it's so obvious that. He was a major player in this in this whole scandal, and there seem to have been no consequences so far. Yeah, I mean, let, let's be honest. Despite what Mr. Collins says, I doubt we're going to see the World Cup taken off Russia, are we? No, definitely not. And that that would be, in my opinion, ridiculous, especially at this stage. What what I think, and what I hope will change in the future is, is how you will vote these major tournaments, but. Right now, I don't see any meaning in, in taking it away from Russia. Were, were you going to say something, Andrew? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to agree um, with both of you guys. I think it's, um, I think the rhetoric of um, taking the World Cup off Russia is just, uh, it's a ridiculous thing to say without, you've got, you've got to remember, Russia, I mean, much as the Mutko link is there, and hence why I mentioned Mutko, if anybody should be a four guy, at least visibly, um, football itself has not been implicated to the same degree as the athletics. Now, I'm not trying to say it's excusable in any way. Whoever was involved, if there is any evidence, should be punished. But I, taking the World Cup away is just its the wrong attitude. And again, again, I'm reading, um, coming over here, it's been a bit of a culture shock reading the media again in such detail about, you know, I'm, I'm seeing people say it was the wrong decision in the first place to send it to Russia, which is just... It could not be more completely wrong, in my opinion. The whole point is, one of the major benefits of the World Cup on a social off-the-field stage is the effect it can have on the country and people's relation to the country. Now, if the process of having the World Cup in Russia highlights what could well be a major problem, then that in itself is a, is a positive. It's getting rid of... It's getting attention on a country. It's getting attention on whatever problems may be there. And that's something that needs to be done in itself. But the actual World Cup being delivered to Russia, I think was a, was a, it was the right decision. It, it must be the right decision simply because of, you know, returning the World Cup to, I mean, I'm an Englishman. I would love to see the World Cup in England, but England doesn't need the World Cup. It has the infrastructure. Um, it has had a major tournament in, you know, in Euro 96, okay, 20 years ago, but, you know, um, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a tournament that will do, that will do a lot of good, even if it does wheedle out some bad problems. That's part of the process, you know, in my opinion. So, um, I think it's just a, it's, it's a knee jerk reaction to say that. 
Um, there will be, of course, a load of pressure from you know the the red top media to say, "Oh, we must take the World Cup off Russia because it's a popular line, it's a juicy headline, it's dramatic." Um, but it, it doesn't make sense, certainly not until we see hard proof of football's widespread, not individual cases, widespread problems. Yeah, Toka, I mean, I think Andrew makes a really good point there, and I was going to make the point that actually taking the World Cup off Russia would have the reverse effect, because the Russian people think, why are these people attacking us personally for problems we have not caused? And Andrew makes the point there that actually highlighting these things can only benefit football and sport. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I found an interesting poll on the Sportish Press, the Russian uh, sports site earlier today, actually, where only only 23% of the voters believed in the in the content of the McLaren report. I found that 46% said that they didn't believe any of it. I found that to be to be quite surprising, actually, um, considering the evidence they have presented uh, now. But yeah, regarding the World Cup, I definitely agree. Don't it wouldn't make any sense to take it away at this point. But I have to say, I don't think Russia should have been awarded the World Cup in the first point. Uh, and I think I've said this before because I'm a huge advocate for the World Cup being more financially uh, sustainable. And I, I simply don't see the point in giving away World Cups to countries who build tons of stadiums at places that don't need them, who spend tons of money on yeah, basically on stadiums they don't need, like we saw in South Africa, but we saw we saw it in Brazil, and we'll see it in Qatar, and we'll see it in Russia as well. If Russia should have been given the World Cup, I think FIFA should should lower the standards of the stadiums and lower the demands to to the host country, which I would which I would be a big fan of. But under the the current circumstances, I just don't see the point in Russia hosting the World Cup and building a Forty thousand spectators uh, stadium in Kaliningrad or Saransk. That's just a waste of money, in my opinion. Money that could have been spent much, much smarter. The only problem with that is you're expecting FIFA to be reasonable. <laughs> uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind saying at this point what Toe commenced about the stadiums. Um, I do think that there should be a, a lot more sense forced into the choice of host cities. I mean. Kaliningrad is clearly chosen for one reason, one reason only, its geographical position nearer Western Europe. Um, it's just so pointless to build a, a World Cup size stadium in Kaliningrad, given that uh, Baltica um, Kaliningrad are almost certainly going to be relegated to the third tier of Russian football. And even if they did somehow in five, ten years work their way up to the Premier League, they're not going to get anywhere near even 10,000 fans, yet alone 30. Um, so, I mean, that was just purely geographical. I think that was, it was madness. And we've seen Saransk chosen. Um, I mean, just uh, Mordovia, one of the dreariest sides ever to be in the Premier League in recent memory. Um, you know, that, why on earth do they need a 30,000 capacity stadium? The stadium should have been chosen better. And I, I don't defend that for one moment. Um, so that's something in general for World Cups. I think there should be a much tighter control on exactly how World Cup host cities are chosen. It shouldn't just purely be the country wants to spread them out purely on a geographical sense. That's that's not sustainable, and that's something that should be looked at more. Okay, I think that's a, a nice way to end this section. I think we've been fairly balanced throughout it, which I think is, is nice. But we're going to go back to matters on the pitch now. And, of course, going into the winter break, we see Spartak Moscow top of the table, clear by five points. 
Um, of course, Toka, the main question is, can they sustain this to the end of the season? We've seen them collapse over the past. And it, is it going to actually work this time? And we saw them collapse in the in Samara the other day when they lost 5-0 to Kriljasovita. That was that was a, a glimpse of the past with the old Spartak. I, I, really, I really hope Spartak can last on. They haven't won the league since 2001. It would be such an amazing story. It would be great for the club. They have the new stadium. They have everything now. They just need to return to the top of, of Russian football. And to be honest, it, it, it does look a, a lot better this season. It, it, they have been absolutely fantastic since Carrera took over the first team. And suddenly they have all these players who were subpar in the, in the recent years are suddenly performing much better. And they, of course, they have Quinty Promis, Dutch international, the biggest star of, uh, of the team. And in my opinion, the best, by far the best player in the league now that Hulk is gone. And <clears throat> then they even managed to, to strengthen the squad. There's, uh, of course, they signed Selikov, the goalkeeper from Amkar. They have signed Sameda from Lokomotiv. So they suddenly have a, they, they have a very impressive squad. I have to say that. And they have, yeah, they have the gap of, with, on five points down to Senate. And it, it does look very, very good at this point. But of course, Spartak are almost, uh, they're famous for, 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 yeah, for f- failing to meet the standards and failing their fans and everything. So, I, it hardly would be a surprise if they collapsed in the spring because that's, that's what they've done every single year in the past, in the past 15 years. But, but I hope they can, they, they can change things and take the title this year. And, and I think they can as well. They, they do look very strong at the moment. And Andrew, but what happens if Promes goes in January? Like Toka says, probably the best mm. player in the league. And actually, I've just realised we've got the Russian Football News top fifty players coming up soon. So that's a massive giveaway of who's going to be number one, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> but Andrew, I mean, what if they lost Promes, or even uh, judge their judge their title ambitions with Promes as well, but also without? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I'd say if I I expect him to stay, um, and if he does stay, I. I don't think I don't think Spartak could be caught at this point. Um, I mean, Zeni always look ominous. They always have that potential to to score three, four against pretty much anybody. Um, but you know, they, Spartak five points clear, thirteen games to go. Um, I mean, I, a quick look at the fixture list and the, the most difficult games they've got left: um, uh, Siska away, Rostov away, and Krasnodar away. All of whom have struggled at different points of the season. Um, I, I expect them. I expect them to wrap up the title. Um, if Promes did go, um, I, I have to be honest. I think I think they probably still would win the title. Um, I mean, he's obviously a critical player. He's like you say, he's certainly uh, certainly the best player uh, in Spartak squad at the moment, um, and probably the league too, I guess. Um, but you know, they, even without him, who would they play instead? Well, I mean, they, they've played Melgarejo, Lorenzo Melgarejo a bit in, in recent weeks as, as a stand-in. He's played, he's not really a full-on striker, but he's played in a forward positions and he's, he's done a job. He's scored against Ural, the Paraguayan, well, you know, bloody hell, wish he hadn't scored. <laughs> swear, but I won't do that. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, but seriously, you look at, uh, at Spartak's squad, you know, Jano Andanidze has been injured for a few games. Um, during this, how long did it take you to rehearse that pronunciation? <laughs> only, only a few days. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and Jano Ananidze, I love, I love him as a little player. What a talented guy. Um, 
and um, you know they've got Evalian Popov who can play out wide perhaps and Zay Luis they will need to come back to full fitness and I think he's due to come back in January so he should be able to take part in the winter break training I think even without promise in summary I think even without him they should have enough uh, especially with Carreras, the way he's gelled the squad together and the, the tactical strength he's brought to them, I still expect them to win the title at this stage. So, yeah, I'm tipping them. Yeah, Toko, of course, Spartak have a great play in promise, but they've also got a couple of other players that they can't really afford to lose in the likes of Bocchetti and Tashi as well. I mean, what happens if they pick up a major injury, for example? And also, like Andrew mentioned, Zenit have always got that capability in them to overcome this sort of distance. And can you see them doing that? Yeah, I mean, we have, we have 13 games left. We have a, a, a game between Senate and Spartak in Moscow. So it's way too early to, to close this down, especially because we know now we have a three-month winter break. And when the season starts up again, we, it, everything has changed because all the, the good form Spartak had this this year, all the problems Senate and Siska and Lokomotiv had, they can be completely gone by January. I mean, it's impossible to bring your momentum from December until March. So it's <clears throat> yeah, it, it's too early to close down the league because we still have 13 games. We only have five points between the two clubs. And as you said, Senate, Senate have, they have looked really good this year. They have those strange uh, drop points, but overall I think they look much, they have looked much better this season than last season. Um, and I expect them to definitely to challenge Spartak. I don't think uh, it will be easy for Sparta just to to walk through the spring here. And as you said, we have we have all these transfer rumors regarding Sparta players like Bucchetti and and Tashi, both two really good central defenders who are both uh, regularly linked with for, uh, foreign clubs, Turkish clubs, Italian clubs. So they they have to really spend all the resources on just keeping the squad together this this winter. That's that's the main problem or the main task for Spartak and I, I believe they can do that because they have plenty of money. Fidun is a rich guy and <clears throat> as the most important thing they can win the first title in, in the first championship in 15 years and yeah, they, they just have to go all in on that and it seems to be that that's what they're doing. I mean they threw away, they threw 5 million euros I believe after Samedov a 32 year old uh, player and that's a that's a lot of money for for a guy that age, but I think it's he he's a great signing. He has uh, he's a great player, but he's also a great person, and he can be a leader both on and off the pitch, and really really animate the players as a, also in the locker room. And that that's really important because that is one of the things perhaps Spartak have have been missing. That is one of these Russian guys who can really animate the rest of the guys and and lead the team, and they really get that in Samita. So that's that's a brilliant signing. Yeah, Andrew, I'm looking at Spartak, and I'm also thinking of Chelsea in England. We have no European football at uh, either of these clubs, and they're both sort of looking favourites for the title. With Zeni doing so well in the Europa League, I mean, the group stage wasn't hard for them, admittedly, but they'll they'll be looking to win that competition, I think. So do you think that lack of European football for Spartak and the heavy European football we'll see for Zenit will actually go in Spartak's favour? Well, I mean, it's, it's the classic line, you know, most people look at when it comes to the second half of the season. And I think it can only, it can only have some effect. I'm sure Lucescu will be sensible with his team selections as the season progresses. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think, um, I think it's in, it's in Zanit's interest to, to make a serious attack on the Europa League. 
And I think they've got the squad to do both, personally. I, I do believe that. Um, you know, I mean, signing Ivan Novotseltsev for, was it 10 million, 11 million euros? Um, I mean, overall, I'd say a, a good signing, um, but use him, you know, and I think, I think they will do. So, you know, when it comes to the running, when we get to, when we get to the business end of the season around April, May, uh, if Zanita's still in the Europa League at that point, which I expect them to be, um, they will, as long as they manage the players correctly, I think it could still be a very competitive end of the season. And that Zanit Spartak game, obviously that will be, that will be the decider. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's done and dusted. I will stick by what I said. I think Spartak, I really do see them winning the title at this stage. Um, lack of European football will help. But I still think it's it's not it's not done and dusted completely yet. So I'm I'm still looking forward to an interesting title race at this point. But are you going with Spartak? <laughs> yes, overall overall I'm going with I'm going with Spartak, yes. I expect them to be able to wrap it up, yeah. Okay, and what about you, Toka? I'll, I'll also go with Spartak because simply as a team they're further developed than the than the competition. Senate is still trying to rebuild the team with Lucesco, trying to bring in new guys and they have Witzel who might leave the club soon. They have Kishito who might leave the club soon. Lokomotiv is still a mess, although, and Simon might not even last this, uh, this year out. Then we have Siska, as we talked about already, also had to rebuild the squad a bit. And yeah, so, so Spartak is definitely the, the safe choice and they just seem further ahead of their, of the other teams right now. So I'll go with them as well. Okay, perfect. Now, I'll, one of my favorite bits is the, questions we get from listeners of course so if any of the listeners and readers of the website do have any questions for us on the podcast then do uh, ask us on twitter facebook email or just a comment on the uh, podcast article on the website so the first one this is aimed at you andrew because i know you watch ural a lot so how is uh, roman pavlyuchenko doing at ural of course ex tottenham player and uh, what's next for him mm, no it's, it was an interesting signing for ural a bit out of character of ural as well if i might add because you know, Aral are not a big club. They don't bring in the big players, generally speaking. Um, how's he done? Well, he, he scored, what's that? I think it's four goals um, for Aral. And on the pitch, he looks a, a shadow of his former self. He, he just isn't He just isn't there. You know, he's, he's well, well past his prime. Um, he doesn't really add a great deal to the squad. Now, I actually thought after the first game, he would be a really good signing because against Ufa, he and Chisam Balungu look like a really good partnership already. Um, Chisam Balungu's lightning quick, as we know, one of the quickest in the league. Um, and Pavlichenko with his experience, his good aerial presence. Um, he looks, he looks hungry, but I, he seems to have lost that hunger already by this stage. Um, and I don't think he will, I don't think he'll bother moving on to another club after this because I don't think he's, I don't think he's able to get a, one last paycheck in a you know Middle Eastern league or or China or or even MLS. I was going to say Kazakhstan. We've seen a couple go there. Well, oh, actually, you know what? That's not a bad point. Possibly he would join the Kairat Almaty Russian Revolution there. Um, I mean, if anything, that I don't see him doing much beyond the season. Um, but honestly, my money's on him retiring. He's, yeah, he's had good points in his career. He won all the the better Russians to have gone to England, um, but. I, I I don't mean to put a down on it, but he's he's well past his prime. He's lost his hunger, and I doubt he's going to have much of an influence on Ural's second half of the season. Okay, perfect. And thank you for uh, to uh, Sevadani 
on Twitter for that question. Uh, next question I'm going to give to you, Toka, um, from Kaputsky on Twitter, who says, are there any transfer rumours at Rostov, and are they going to buy any new players? Of course, we've seen them progress into the Europa League, so that'll be a nice financial boost for them, given current financial circumstances at the club. But have we heard anything about them signing anybody? Yeah, I read that they received at least they, they received at least 15 million euros for the Champions League campaign, and that can even grow now with the Europa League qualification and everything. But they still have uh, a large amount of depth for the players. Uh, soon after the PSV game, Noboa said that as the players keep winning and the results keep getting better, they they keep, they keep achieving new bonuses and the, simply the depth just grows. So I wouldn't expect Rostov to make any big signings. I think key goal should be just simply to keep the keep the squad together, keep um, keep a guy like Asmud in the club. And then I haven't seen any concrete rumors at this stage, but I assume they'll try to bring in some a few players, but I don't expect any major big signings for them because they simply don't have the money. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, Toka mentions Asmun there. I mean, a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. How likely is he to stay? And also, my other thing is, people always say, oh, what about signing this player, this player, that player? I always think, actually, when you've got such a good team spirit like Rostov do, you want to be very careful about not upsetting the balance there. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think for, for that reason and for the financial reason, I'd be very surprised to see them bring in, bring in anybody, unless, unless it's somebody they've had their eye on for a while and that they've scouted, you know, not just the playing ability, but the character. Like you say, I think that would be critical. I, in a, in a strange way, I don't think they need to sign anybody at this point. Perhaps in the summer, if they really do get more prize money and they sort the finances out, um, they could rebuild in the summer, but I actually don't think for this point there's, there's much to be gained by signing anybody. Asmoon, I don't expect to leave yet. Um, he does seem like the sort of player who doesn't have a huge amount of, of, of routes laid down yet. Um, you know, we saw his departure from Rubin was fairly, well, fairly Asmoon directed, should we say. It's still um, under investigation, so that transfer, isn't it? Well, I, 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 I've been absolutely shocked at how quiet the news has been over it. I mean, I, I, I cannot believe that the, this transfer has been allowed to go ahead. But, you know, he's continued playing and people seem to have... I've not seen anybody in Russian media talk about it in the last few months or weeks. So I expect to see something come out of that in the future. But now in terms of him at Rostov, uh, I expect him to stay until the summer. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him go in the summer, but I, I'm not actually entirely sure where because... Um, I don't see him as a particularly modern forward in the sense that, you know, uh, say Dimitri Polas, I think, would be much more marketable and desirable for a lot of European clubs. Um, you know, his style of play and, and, um, and his, well, better maturity, should we say. But no, in terms of Rostov, I expect him to keep the squad together, um, enjoy a little bit of Europa League and, um, and maybe in the summer, if they can use the prize money they've had from European football to, stabilize their their wage structure then maybe we'll see a bit of change then but for now i don't expect them to change much well we certainly hope that rostov get a big team in the europa league draw when it comes out because that'd be fantastic for the club and the final question has come through uh bob sanders on the website and this is direct to both of you uh toka who has the best average attendance in the russian premier league now i, su- I assume you're going to have to take both angles on this really like in terms of just pure numbers and then percentage of the stadium well, yeah, that, that's a good question. I think when, when we talk about the attendance, of course, the big clubs is always it's Spartak. All the basically 
what you have to think about is who's hosting a World Cup, who have a new stadium, and then you can say these clubs are the ones who have the most fans in the stadiums. Uh, but a club I always like to include when you talk about the attendance is, is a club like Terek, for example, because they don't have a World Cup. They do have a new stadium, and they have a very passionate following base in uh, in Grasny. They get... That's it's such a and that's why it's such a difficult place to play. That's why Senate go then lose. That's why Cisco go then struggle, because it is a really difficult place to play. They have a lot of passionate fans and, and everything. But if we are strictly at the numbers, Spartak at the brand new at Kritia Arena is, is of course the 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 leader. And then we have Krasnodar, their new stadium as well. They're also doing very very good. So yeah, it is a big plus with the new stadiums. That's that's the place to to look for this these kind of numbers. Um, would you go along with that, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the biggest problems, I say, one of the most visible problems in Russian Premier League is is the the attendances in the stadiums, and um, you know, I, there's so many times you do see huge swathes of unused seats. But one thing I'd say is clubs like well, like Rostov. As we mentioned, they've, their stadium is one of the smallest in the league, about 15,000. And, um, you know, for league games, the percentage of the stadium, they must have one of the highest. Um, at European games, of course, then they pack it out and it's, it's quite an intimidating atmosphere. Um, but, you know, at the, at the opposite end of the scale, you know, Bob's asked about the highest attendances. I think the lowest end of attendances is the more telling area to look. Um, in Orenburg Stadium, um, which they, they, they had to expand it just to play, um, any games this season. They were expanding it still when the season started. Um, and they expanded it from four, 4,800 to about seven and a half thousand. Um, and their attendances proportional to the capacity are sort of not too bad. But the fact that they don't need any more than seven thousand capacity in the top flight uh, club is is quite that's embarrassing really, um, so I mean at the top end yeah like Toke says Spartak have always got a good attendance um, and uh, Terek I like I like the atmosphere at Terek's stadium you know they it's it's usually pretty intense so I like those two um, and uh, yeah so it's it's one of the problems that needs to be addressed um, and uh, I hope I hope the World Cup as we hope it will stay in Russia, um, will spark attendances a bit more as we run up to it. I'm going to throw Zenit in there for good measure. You know, small stadium, 20,000, they usually pack it quite well, especially for mm. the big game, so that's always a good thing. Now, the best part. It's the only in Russian football moment. So, Toka, I'm just going to come straight to you. I haven't, I haven't got any clues about this. I usually have a bit of a clue of what these two are going to say, but I have no clue this time, so surprise me. And these... Only in Russia moment. They're usually, that stuff we try to make fun of Russia a bit. It's, it's always a bit like a joke. But this time I found something positive. Because I just read that, um, Spartak Moscow's biggest ultras group, the Fratia, they spent a lot of time in November rebuilding, um, a gymnasium for, for, for handicapped, uh, visually impaired children. Simply, uh, to help them. And I think that's, that really shows a lot about, both Russia, but also Russian fan culture, where it's not only about sporting the team, but there's also this sense of giving something back to the community. It's not only about the game day, but but also trying to to help. And I think this was just a, a stunning gesture, really, really, um, really cool. I'll, I'll share some pictures on, on our Twitter um, next week when this when this uh, podcast is online. 
and you really should check it out because it's it's yeah it's just remarkable oh perfect i mean the thing you mentioned about the community really hits with me because i think with 2018 coming up everyone's obviously bad mouthing it quite a lot we can expect that but i think people will be very surprised at how accommodating russian people are and they are some of the best hosts you will ever come across so hopefully people can look forward to that so andrew what's your only in russian football news well only in russian football moment for this week uh well after that that's a it's a wonderful story to hear about from from toko mine mine is um I feel a bit embarrassed. It's a bit silly, if I'm honest. Yeah, I've got that. I've got one as well. Well, I mean, I I think that's kind of the point of this segment. We want to show different sides of Russia. And I'm I'm delighted to hear that story about the fractured group. And and I completely, completely agree with you, Thomas, about Russians as hosts. And that's one thing I really hope people do take out of the World Cup. Because in my experience, I agree with you 100%. The Russians are the best hosts um, as people. And I'm really looking forward to people seeing that side of them. And seeing stories like this from Fracture Fan Group, fantastic. I love that. Um, but my only in Russian moment is, um, well, yeah, it involves my wife's first experience of football. Um, we went to watch FC Tumen when they were in the second division uh, a few years ago. And my wife's not remotely interested in football, but she enjoyed the, she enjoyed the culture. The atmosphere was welcoming and friendly. So far, so good. Um, and a ball was played out wide to the right wing. Um, I mean, she men were playing dreadfully, but my wife didn't know that. Um, <laughs> and and it, the ball comes out to Sergei Volosyan. I am naming and shaming this guy for good reason. Um, now, this was a pass went five, ten yards, right? And the guy's a winger. Nobody, nobody pressuring him whatsoever. And um, the pitch is an all-weather pitch, so the surface was very smooth. Didn't bobble at all. And um, for some unknown reason, Velocian suddenly decided he was going to whip in a first-time cross um, because our striker at the time, Sergei Sergikov, big lump of a striker, um, was in the box. Um, the only problem was he forgot to realise that his foot actually needed to make contact with the ball to make the cross, <laughs> and he fell flat on his ass. Um, ball rolled out of play, um, and and I thought, hang on a minute, this is a professional footballer who's just air kicked a ball from five yards. Only, only in Russia could you see that happen on the pitch. <laughs> to be fair, I don't think that only happens in Russia. It definitely, ha- it definitely happens when I play in England. But, <laughs> but uh, my one is we've seen it on a regular basis. Um, went to Wembley the other night for the Tottenham match. Even at three-one down and playing terribly, CSKA fans in the away end, you know, shirts off, jumping up and down, still loving being at Wembley. I think that's just fantastic that the fans <laughs> kept going. Uh, that's just classic Russian, really. But anyway, I think that brings us to the end, gents. So, uh, Toka, thank you once again for being on with us. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Um, perfect. And, Andrew, once again, congratulations on your Blogger of the Year award. Cheers. Thank you very much, Thomas. Great, great to be, great, great to be back on the podcast, um, from the unusual setting of England. But yeah. Good to see you guys. Perfect. Uh, okay. So you can like us on Facebook, uh, just search Russian Football News at Russ Football News on Twitter, RussianFootballNews.com. Do check out their stuff going up on there all the time which will hopefully pique your interest do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud as well and uh, we will see you on the next podcast